Open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Where by the grace of God, I would like to preach to you probably two messages today from the seventh verse. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes to these Hebrew Christians summarizing their duties. And he tells them, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. This morning I want to spend some time studying your duties toward your minister. Because it's part of the message that God's given to us. Paul wrote to a church. He had a little more liberty than a pastor does because he was an apostle above the elders of the churches of the Hebrews. And he could tell those churches to remember them that have the rule over you. But for a minister to be faithful, he has to preach even a verse like Hebrews 13, 7. Verses 1 through 3 that we covered several Sundays ago, the first Sunday of this year, deal with your relationship towards your brethren. Verse 4 deals with your relationship towards your spouse. Verse 5 deals with your relationship toward yourself. Verse 6 deals with your relationship toward the world. Verse 7 deals with your relationship towards your pastor. With the breakdown in authority in America today, in general, wherever God ordained authority and a position of leadership and preeminence, the world has tried to deny that. And they believe that God created all men equal. God never said that. The framers of our Constitution may have said that, but God didn't say that. God has made differences since He created Adam and Eve and made the first great difference between the man and his woman. But with the breakdown of authority in general, the ministry hasn't been an exception. The pulpits of America have been diluted and demoted to where they're no longer working the effective place they should in the churches of this nation. People find it easy today to judge ministers as being, quote, authoritarian, unquote, or they judge ministers as being dictatorial just because those ministers try to take to themselves, not by themselves, but by the authority of God's Word, some measure of authority and rule over the congregation that God has given them. The deacon committee in most churches today has become the, quote, guardian of the pulpit, unquote, by a coup d'etat. If you were to look up the word coup d'etat, it is the unjust seizing of authority for oneself. And in most churches, the deacons have, a seize, have seized authority. God never gave them. God never even implied for them to even have an interest in over the ministry. And so ministers have suffered as a result. Today, in most pulpits, 
any preaching that goes beyond milk toast slobbering is considered hateful extremism. Dogmatic ministers who control and lead their churches are called little popes. But if you were to look through the Word of God, which we've done together before, and we look at ministers ranging from Moses to Elijah to Ezekiel to Hosea to Jeremiah to Nehemiah to John the Baptist to the Apostle Paul, they were dogmatic ministers, if any man. Listen, if an angel comes down and preaches anything different than I've preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, that's dogmatic. But who wants to call Paul the first pope? They usually reserve that for Peter. But they were dogmatic men who took charge of churches. Why, when Paul heard there was a fornicator at Corinth, he wrote and he said in 1 Corinthians 5, 3, I've judged already. I don't need to debate this issue with you. I don't need you to send me more details. I've judged already. Exclude the man as soon as you can call for a full assembly of the church. But with the breakdown of authority in the 20th century, most ministers wouldn't dare take the liberty and the responsibility that God's given them to oversee their congregations as a ruler. And are we not reaping the, benefit, the results of that? Even if all the saints of God were most submissive to the ministry, and though authority was exalted to where it belongs, it would still be hard for a minister to preach on this verse. Some may have thought that Hebrews 13.4 was difficult to preach. Hebrews 13.4 was nothing compared to Hebrews 13.7. Hebrews 13.7, I have to say in effect, remember me. Some will think and maybe accuse me of promoting myself. And believe me, there's a heart inside of me big enough that thinks that a lot in approaching a sermon like that I have prepared for you today. However, I look at Acts chapter 20, and I'd like you to look at it. Acts chapter 20, and I realize my duty, and not only my duty, but your benefit will flow from me preaching just as hard on Hebrews 13.7 as I would ever preach on any other verse. So I shall. Acts chapter 20 and verse 20. Paul is speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. In that verse, I want you to see that Paul kept back nothing that was profitable. And I'm going to show you before I finish today that you obeying Hebrews 13, 7 is to your profit. Now, you may be saying to yourself, but it's to your profit also. Well, that's how most of the, God, the, the Word of God works. If you love your brethren, not only do your brethren realize the benefit, you will realize the benefit. Because perfect love casts out fear, and where fear is, there is torment, 1 John 4.18. So by loving your brethren, you save yourself from torment. God has arranged His commandments 
not only because he requires them, but the object and the subject receive benefits by practicing those commandments. Look at verse 27 of Acts 20. He continues by saying, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And I'm not going to shun my duty this morning and not preach Hebrews 13.7 or quickly run over Hebrews 13.7. It is for your profit. It is part of the Word of God. It is profitable for you. It's the whole counsel of God. So it needs to be preached. The Apostle Paul himself said, I magnify mine office. I will magnify the office of the New Testament ministry. In my defense, I'll say one more thing. I spent 22 messages, almost 30 hours of preaching, exalting the men of this congregation in your sphere of authority, didn't I? Do you remember the series on child training. Where was my emphasis in that series? But to set you men up on high, because that's where God places you in your homes, over your wives, over your children. Now, I spent a great deal of effort and time doing that because that's also the counsel of God. But bear with me this morning as I establish the office of the ministry, which involves the speaker which makes it difficult, but it's going to be done. We have to do it. There's profit to remembering your minister. Remember them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. Remember them. Look at Hebrews 13 and verse 17 this time. We'll come again to this verse, but we'll deal with it here also. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. Now Paul said, I withheld nothing that was profitable for you. Now here's something that's profitable. For you to know my role in your life. For you to know my role in your life. Yes, when you get on your knees, you can pray to God direct. I am no priest for you. I am not a mediator between you and God, per se. But I am Christ's ambassador and his messenger in two directions. I bring his message to you, and I bring your behavior to him. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why should you do that? For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Now my duty is in the middle of that verse. I have to give an account for your souls. These men that pastor 5,000 members. How in the world do they give an account when they don't even know the names of all their members? I can manage... 58. It takes some work, but I can manage it. I give an account. And because of that, I watch for your souls. Therefore, it's your duty to obey and submit yourselves that when I get on my knees and talk to God about you individually, I'm talking about you 
in terms of commendation and praise, that will result in your profit, that I can do it with joy. It's a joy to remember without ceasing certain churches in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was able to say. But if I have to give an account of your soul with grief, grief that you haven't shown as much fruit as you should have, grief that you're not obeying and not submitting as you should have, then that is unprofitable for you. Now, I'm going to say some hard things about the ministry like I say hard things on every subject. But I'm going to magnify the office and I'm going to preach the Word of God. If you find your life is unprofitable, there is one other place you should look that maybe you haven't looked. How are you remembering those that have the rule over you and have spoken to you the Word of God? How do you remember them? Because if I have to give an account with grief, it will be to your unprofitableness. Men sometimes wonder, why don't things go right in my life more often? Remember your ministry. I'm not saying that's the only thing to do. It's one of the things to do. To help you understand the role of the ministry, do you remember when God spoke to the three friends of Job? And he told them, you go to Job, and you have Job pray for you. Because if you pray right now, I'm so ticked off, I'm not going to hear you. But I'll hear Job. So they went to Job, and Job prayed for them. And the three friends were saved by Job's prayer. That's the position of a mediator. Just as so many other men have prayed for cities, for nations, for families, Job provided the same similar role. He prayed for God to have mercy on his three friends, and God had mercy on the three friends. The same prayer uttered by their mouths would not have worked. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I want to establish how this is profitable for you. There are, There is within the heart of man, I'm not saying there's anyone in this room, there is within the heart of man sufficient evil to think that I'm preaching this for myself. I'm preaching it for you. Notice what Paul says about financial support in Philippians 4, beginning at verse 14. He says, Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. That doesn't mean they called him on the telephone. That means they sent him a financial gift. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. They were the only church that supported him financially in the beginning of the gospel. For even in Thessalonica, when he was at another church, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. And why is Paul bringing this point up? Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. How many of you want an accounting before Almighty God that has some positive check marks in the appropriate side? That's the asset side or the income side. Do you want fruit that will abound to your account? Then remember your ministry. The Philippians did that, 
and they had fruit to their account. And Paul said, I'm commending you for it, not because I'm so anxious for a gift, but I want to see you people benefited by keeping the whole counsel of God. I don't want to keep anything back that will be to your profit. And he goes on in verse 18 to describe the gift they had just sent him. But he told them in verse 19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That is because of their faithfulness in supporting him. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. I wish I knew exactly how to strike a nerve in each one of you every Sunday morning to get you on a nervous edge to listen to everything and to apply it as intensely as I'm trying to deliver it. I am preaching for your profit right now. If you want a prosperous life, you will take heed to the sermon this morning and not think that I'm just supporting the ministry of which I happen to be a member. This is for your benefit. Remember what we read just last Sunday morning in Joshua chapter 1? That if you take diligent heed to observe to do all that God has commanded, He'll make your way prosperous and you'll find good success. This is one of the ways. And here's why. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40. Speaking to the twelve disciples. He that receiveth you, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. God gave the gift of the ministry to Christ. Christ then gave the gift of the ministry to certain men that he calls his ambassadors, his servants, his ministers, his stewards. When you receive the steward or the servant or the minister or the ambassador, you are receiving the king that sent the ambassador. If our nation were to take the ambassador of, let's say, the Soviet Union, and tar and feather him in New York City, would the Soviet Union be offended with that action? Now, we live in such a milk-toast generation that to even think of it is almost beyond our own ability to imagine. But what if we did that? You're rejecting the king that sent that ambassador. It's a plain statement to the nation that sent that ambassador. Jesus said, if those that receive you, my disciples, they're receiving me because I commissioned you, and they're receiving him that sent me. It traces itself all the way back to God. I am in the office, God's ambassador and representative to you. No, I don't get grins saying that. But I have also said the same thing about all of you men. You are God's representatives and ambassadors in your homes to your wives and to your children. That is God's way of things in this world. And God's ways may not be our ways, but we're going to follow His ways and make our ways His ways. The way you treat your minister is a direct treatment of God. I don't even want to call it indirect treatment of God. It traces itself directly to God because God put me in this job I never wanted it 
Most God-called ministers never wanted to be a minister. How do I know that? Look in the Bible. Look at Jonah. Look at Elijah. Look at Moses. Look at Paul. They didn't want to be ministers. They had their own ambitions. They were afraid of the office. They were afraid of the commitment. They were afraid of the condemnation that goes with being a master. Most God-called men will follow the pattern of the Apostle Paul and they'll reject any desire, ambition for the office. Most ministers, by the nature of their qualifications, are qualified to be successful in the world. Was Moses qualified to be successful in the world? <laughs> Learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty in word and deed. Was the Apostle Paul, did he have a sufficient intelligence and ability to have accomplished great things in the world? A Pharisee of the Pharisees raised the feet of Gamaliel, learned in all the wisdom of the Pharisees. They don't necessarily want the office, but God put them in it. Just like you men, when I preach 22 messages on child training, do I really want all of this responsibility? I wish I would have heard this before I had children. I would have entered into marriage and childbearing a little, with a little more thought than I did. I hope that it discouraged none of you to say, I wish I didn't have any children, but it's intimidating, isn't it? And so is the ministry, because the Bible says, Be not many masters, knowing ye shall receive the greater condemnation. Every power is ordained of God. According to Romans chapter 13, that speaks of our civil rulers. If you reject the civil ruler in Romans chapter 13, you are rejecting the ordinance of God, that passage tells us. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that if wives reject the authority of their husbands, they are rejecting God in the same way that Christ would reject the God, if, if the same way that the church would reject God, if the church refused to submit itself to Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, we're told that servants who obey their masters well are serving the Lord Christ. Whenever you obey one of God's five ordained positions of authority in this world, you are obeying God and you are serving Him because He was the one that ordained that office and put that man in it. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. That is the chain of authority from God through Christ to his ministers. Now the Hebrews knew a little bit about obeying authority. Let's look at some of the examples of the Old Testament and how the Hebrews did understand. Let's look at Exodus chapter 16 first. Remember Paul is writing to Jews. But I want to make a point, and that is these verses, which are the strongest in any epistle to church members, are written to Hebrews who well understood ministerial authority because of the Old Testament, and Paul takes that understanding and says, remember, New Testament ministers who have spoken to you the Word of God. No, they aren't New Testament ministers that have sat upon the throne of David. 
They're not New Testament ministers that have gone into the Holy of Holies once a year like the high priest Aaron did. They're New Testament gospel preachers. Exodus chapter 16 brings us to an event where God defends His ministers. And I want to just simply get one point out of this passage that relates to Matthew 10 and verse 40. And that is when you reject God's ministers, you reject God. When you don't remember God's minister, you don't remember God. When you don't highly esteem God's minister, you're not highly esteeming God. This is a passage where the children of Israel murmured against Moses because they were lacking in their food and water. And the Lord tells them in verse, or Moses tells them in verse 8, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. For that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against Him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. When you murmur against God's ministry, you're murmuring against the Lord. Listen, what I preach, what I do, as far as I am obeying the Scriptures, is what God wants to be accomplished in this congregation. Remember, God sees the end from the beginning. He knew your temperament. He knew your background. He knew your experiences. He knew my temperament, my background, my experiences. He put us together for a purpose. And you murmur against your ministry, you're murmuring against what God wants for you. Poor Moses. This is not the first, it is not the last time the children of Israel murmured against him. Let me add one thing to that, and that's verse 10. It came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. While God's men are on trial here before this majority who are murmuring against them that they made a bad decision to bring these people out into the wilderness, the glory of the Lord appears in a cloud. Now, the cloud didn't suck any men up this time. It will shortly, but the glory of the Lord appeared. Now, see, you may not appreciate that much. I read Exodus chapter 16 when I get to the last clause of verse 10. My blood runs more freely. I perspire. I smile. My heart is filled with joy to see God intervene in the behalf of a very meek man named Moses who never wanted to lead those rebellious people. And when they gathered together in a majority against him, there was that cloud. Just a little reminder. Just a little reminder because it was that same cloud that came between the Egyptians and the Israelites when the Egyptian army floated in the Red Sea. It's comforting to God's ministers to read a passage like that. Look at 1 Samuel 8, 7. I'm trying to drive home one simple point. When you reject or murmur against God's ministers, you're rejecting or murmuring against God Himself. 1 Samuel 8, 7. This is a pitiful story here. There were, there were 450 years of judges over Israel. Who was the last judge over Israel? Samuel. What did the people do with Samuel? 
Samuel was their judge. He was their ruler. He had a title of judge. The people came to him and said, we want a king. Can you imagine what that must have done to Samuel, who had been their judge for years, had faithfully served them since he was five years old? We want a king. Verse 6, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Notice what they're saying. Your judgment isn't good enough because they want a king to judge us. He'd been judging them. The thing displeased Samuel. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Can you imagine the poor man? You can't. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. See, Samuel was just a little man. All he did was administer God's word and God's judgment. They wanted a king. They wanted a man that they could put way up on a throne in a palace that they could glory in instead of having Samuel. And God said, they haven't rejected you, brother. They haven't rejected you, my servant. They've rejected me from reigning over them. If you mistreat or reject God's minister, you mistreat or reject God, and I don't think I need to warn you what happens when you mistreat or reject Almighty God. We read enough about that great being in Psalm 68 this morning. It's sort of like wax before a fire when God considers you his enemy. And when you're mistreating him, that's what you're making yourself. Look at Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, and let's put ourselves right in the shoes of the Hebrews as we try to remember what the Bible has to say about the rule of God's spiritual ministers. Numbers chapter 12. Verse 1, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. Well, now they pick on something practical and personal in his life. They join together. You're going to see this more and more. Aaron and Miriam get together and come to Moses and criticize him for the woman he's married. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And here's where my blood runs more freely again, and I get a warm glow. And the Lord heard it. The Lord's always listening for, the, for what people say about his ministers. I am not preaching this to put my burden on you for what you say about me in your heart, and in your homes, and in your cars. I am putting God's burden on you for what you say in your heart, and in your homes, and in your cars about me. And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek. Above all the men which were upon the face of the earth, that's the Holy Spirit's little personality description to us of Moses. He never wanted that job. You remember the great lengths he went to to try to keep God from putting him into this position. He didn't want 
a position of preeminence. The Holy Spirit just adds that for you to understand how deeply this would have hurt Moses. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses, Thank you, Lord, for coming quickly to his aid. And unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. <laughs> I find that interesting. When God commands, men move. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud, there's that pillar of glory, and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. Now they're approaching on their own, on their own two feet to go toward the presence of the Lord while Moses stands back. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, and there might be, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. Those are the standard ways of a prophet getting God's message by a vision or a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. He's getting a, a uh, review here of his performance. This is what you call a performance appraisal in front of Moses, in front of Aaron and Miriam. My servant Moses is not so. I don't waste time in visions, nor do I waste time in dreams with Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, that's clearly, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He reviews his performance and he reviews his relationship with God. I speak to Moses directly. Moses is my man. Why then are you taking liberty to presume against Moses? They realized God had never spoken to them mouth to mouth. They realized they had never seen the similitude of the Lord. And they realized they weren't faithful in all his house. As Remember what Aaron did in Exodus chapter 32? Fashioning a golden calf and telling the people to have a celebration unto the Lord? with a golden calf? Oh, believe me, God got to them quickly in just a few sentences. Verse 9, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And brethren, I don't want that to happen to any of you, to have the anger of the Lord kindled against you. My anger is rather irrelevant compared to his. And he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. Why, he condemned... Er Aaron and Miriam, and then disappeared. And behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow, advanced stages of a destructive disease that ruins your appearance and skin and flesh. White as snow, and Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Aaron sees what their little exploits had accomplished. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, Lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. Who did they need to turn to to get things corrected? Was God there to even hear them? He departed and left them to make them crawl. Verse 12, he continues his prayer to Moses. Let her not be as one dead, because that's what leprosy is like. It's the walk. It's the walking dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed. 
when he cometh out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. And the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that let her be received in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. If a woman's father were to have done something to her like to spit in her face, which would be to rebuke her and put her in her place, she'd be unclean seven days, and God said, let her wait out there for seven days and think about what she's done. Have you ever disciplined your children and told them to sit and think about it for a while? God wanted Miriam to think about it for seven days. Brethren, this passage, and I'm spending the time in it, is for your profit. You think about how you speak about your minister. And I, if I die tomorrow, and you get another minister and he serves you well for the next 50 years, watch how you speak about that minister. If you leave this church and go to another church because you don't like this minister, watch how you speak about your minister. God will hear it. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. It would not be to your profit to have the anger of the Lord kindled against you. If God can take such high offense at the Israelites not building His temple in the book of Haggai, what does He do when His people do not take proper care of His men? Numbers chapter 16, I'm going to read the vast majority of this chapter and comment on it as we proceed through it. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Korah is of what tribe? He's a Levite. What does that mean he does for a living? Not a priest. He serves around the tabernacle. What did you have to have to be a priest? Son of Aaron. Serves around the tabernacle. He's in the ministry. Brethren, this is so good. I mean, by the time I get done with number 16, there are so many valuable points, especially for us who came from churches where the deacons had some measure of rule and who were not satisfied to wait on tables and sweet basements and clean latrines but who wanted to rule the ministry. These men had those kind of jobs. What did the Levites do? They unpacked the tabernacle. They set it up. They shoveled dung. They carried bones. They made fire. They did things like that. The priests were the ones that were involved directly in the worship of God. Now Korah the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Dathan, Abiram, and On are of what tribe? Reuben. They rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Notice that what these men do when they want to overthrow authority, they gather together all the other famous, important, respected men 
in the congregation and gather themselves together. Now there's quite a majority here, wouldn't you say? It says they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250. So what's the total that we have facing Moses? 253. 254, excuse me. We have Korah, we have Dathan, we have Abiram, and we have On, plus the 250 famous men. They gather together. Now, they were already princes. They were already men of renown. But see, it's men like that who will by their reputation. After all, Moses, we are the respected leadership of this nation. We expect you to listen to us. God did ordain the office of deacon. Yes, God gave an office called deacon to the New Testament church. But that office is so limited in the New Testament. It is not a gift of Jesus Christ because the office of deacon requires no gift. What does the office of deacon require? Faithful service. Faithful service. Every man in this congregation should be qualified to be a deacon. The, re the way deacons are chosen is by the congregation picking out of their own number men that, that may have a preeminence for their faithfulness in service to be charged with a task. And if we had enough widows and enough buildings and or whatever other manual obligation was required that required deacons, you all could be deacons if you were faithful. If the case ever arrived that way, it's not a gift. When Jesus Christ ascended up on high, He received the Spirit for gifts and gave that to men. And we read about those gifts. There were apostles, there were prophets, there were evangelists, and there were pastors and teachers. Did He give deacons? No. That isn't a gift of Jesus Christ. It isn't a gift of the true ministry. It's not even a true ministering position except a server of tables. That's what the Word of God teaches about it. These men were in a role sort of like deacons in the Old Testament church. Verse 3, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. It's fun to be part of a crowd, isn't it? Then you can all stand there and pick on a single man or a couple men. They gathered together, 254, standing in a big, impressive semicircle, facing poor little Moses. And they say these words to Moses, and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. The first thing they do is they claim that we have an equality with the ministry. We have an equality with the ministry. All the congregation is holy. All of them. But of course, especially us, we happen to be the famous men of renown in the congregation. But the whole congregation is holy. Who gives you the authority to lift yourselves up above the rest of us? And along come the deacons. Why, the Bible says that God's made us all kings and priests unto Him. 
Is that scriptural statement? Is it a scriptural application? It's an irrelevant application. Yes, God's made you all kings and priests. You can go to God in prayer. You can intercede on your own behalf, but he's also put ministers over you and given them authority. But how many times has that been used to say that we're all equal? God's given authority to some. You take too much upon you seeing all the congregation is holy. Who do you think you are that you can take that position of authority over us? We're all holy. You know, we can interpret Scripture too. You know, we have a relationship with God also. You know, we can pray. You're not the only one that can. And so they try to argue that there shouldn't be any difference made, even though God himself had made it. The second thing they do is they say, ye take too much upon you. You know, they like to accuse the ministry of personal ambition. The reason I'm your pastor, a man like Cora would reason, is that I wanted to, ha I, I have, I'm on some ego trip. And I love to have the four hours of Sunday when I can stand up and tell you people what to do. It gives me such a thrill of power. That's a hilarious thought to me. I hope it's a hilarious thought to everyone in here. But that's how a core would reason. You take too much upon you. Blame the ministry for evil ambitions. And when you've got men like Jim Baker running around this country and Jimmy Swaggart and a whole pile of others, you can't blame cores today entirely because there are a lot of men that are on ego trips and have, are taking too much upon themselves. There are three things in verse 3. I've mentioned two of them. The first is, we're all holy. Who do you think you are? Second, you're taking too much upon you, casting doubt upon personal ambitions and motives. Third, it's majority rule. 254 against 2. That's a very intense crowds in school. Many of us caved into the crowd in school because of the fear of numbers. Whenever we exclude someone in this congregation, I am before you in fear and trembling because I face the majority. And when it comes down to exclusion, it is a punishment inflicted by many. I can command you what to do, but if you people refuse to do it, we have in one brief moment separated our ways because I am no longer your pastor. And every time we do it, I do it in fear and trembling. I don't care how secure the case may appear. I do it in fear and trembling because of majority rule. And when it comes to exclusion, it really isn't majority rule because God has already ruled through his word. And I simply present his word, but it, because of the Lord's Supper and the nature of that ordinance, being a community ordinance, you can reject the counsel of God. Three things in verse 3 that I wanted you to get. Verse 4, and when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. What did they accuse him of? He has evil ambitions. He thinks he's holier than we are. He's trying to oppose 254 holy, famous men of renown. Now, why did Moses fall on his face? Do you remember anything from Numbers chapter 12? Meekest man on the face of the earth. He fell on his face before Almighty God and these men that they would think something like that of him. And he was embarrassed because he never wanted 
that position of preeminence over these men. He first of all responds in meekness, brethren, but then he responds to defend his office. Paul said, I magnify mine office, and so did Moses in verse 5. And he spake unto Kor and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Did he say them, or did he say him? Singular or plural? Now, that's confidence, isn't it? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do unto me. He boldly said it. Tomorrow we'll find out. And God will manifest him that is to draw near unto him, him that is truly holy. Now, here are the instructions, beginning at verse 6. This do. Take you censors, Korah and all his company, and put fire therein. Now, is Korah accustomed to taking censers of incense and going in before the presence of God? No. What did Korah do? Why, he may have mixed incense. He may have boxed up the censers. He may have swept the tabernacle of the congregation. But he didn't go in with incense before the presence of God. Moses is saying, okay, you think I'm holy? You think I've taken more of a job than I should have? You think you're as holy and you're able to go before the presence of God? Get yourself a nice little censer and fill it with incense and get ready to come before the Lord. Take you censers, Korah, and all his company. That includes 250 from the tribe, or 250 from other tribes and several men from Reuben. And put fire therein and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. Little meek Moses is beginning to sound authoritarian, isn't he? Oh, for, oh to God that we had more ministers that would stand up and look down at the first two rows or wherever they sit in the church and say, ye take too much upon you, ye deacons, and preach a sermon that would set that church on their ears. Wouldn't that be great? And fire 12 of the 15. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You take too much upon you, you deacons. I like Moses. Starts with a little whisper, laying there on the ground. Then he stands up, and by the time he gets done in verse 7, you take too much upon you. It gets better than this, brethren, before we end this chapter. You take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. You're not thankful for what God's given you. Verse 8, Moses said unto Korah, Here, I pray you, ye sons of Levi. Listen to this man appeal to their sense of reason. Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also, for which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? Notice the reasoning. Do you just think it's a little thing that God's chosen you to, be, to minister around the tabernacle? Remember, they gave up their own personal ambition because God demanded it of them to be Levites. They were supported by subsidy from the rest of the tribe. Thirteen and a third percent a year 
from 12 tribes gave them a rather adequate means of support, wouldn't you say? They were able to come near to the Lord. Remember, the rest of the congregation had to stand there in fear and trembling and hope their offering was accepted. That's not enough for them. They wanted more. They want to be a priest, just like Aaron, as Moses puts it to, to, him, to them. So do deacons. They're given an office in the church of responsibility to serve, but they're not content with that. They want to exercise and get their fingers into the pie of the ministry. They want to be able to tell who is going to preach in the church. When one minister leaves, they are in charge of finding the next minister. When a minister preaches on some subject that they don't necessarily agree with entirely, they want to go to him and tell him he should modify what he's preaching. They're not content to be in a position of service. They accuse Moses again of evil motives and try to intimidate him. Beginning at verse 12, And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey? That's Egypt, brethren, if you can't interpret. They're calling Egypt a land flowing with milk and honey. To kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. Here's what they're saying, if you can't understand. The only reason that we can think of that you would have brought this entire nation up out of a land flowing with milk and honey is so that you could establish yourself as a prince over us out here in the wilderness and start your own nation. Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So I hear some church members saying his doctrine is getting harder and harder and harder. He keeps making greater and greater differences between us and the rest of the religious world. He is just trying to establish his own little cult and following that will follow his thinking, his ideas, his ways. That's all he's trying to do. And then when a minister ever dares confront them, they say, what are you going to do to us? Exclude us just like you've excluded the others who didn't get along with you? This is so appropriate, so practical in what happens in so many churches. What are you going to do? Exclude us? Here are these men. What are you going to do? Poke our eyes out? Trying to intimidate poor Moses as if he's some ogre who goes around poking people's eyes out because they don't do things his way to make him a prince over them. When have I ex ever excluded anyone because they didn't like me? Now I like Moses at this stage. I believe in meekness because the Bible says we ought to be meek. But a meek man isn't a wimp. Meek does not mean milk toast. Meek just means he doesn't presume to take a position of preeminence. He'd rather take a back seat if he could have a choice. That's what meek means. First. 15. And Moses was very wroth. Now, I read those words one other time when Moses smote a rock instead of speaking to it and God judged him. You won't find that here, brethren. You want to talk about righteous indignation? It's when a minister stands on his two, I shouldn't say hind legs, that sounds like he has four, but when a minister stands up and defends his office. Moses was very wroth and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. 
I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. Now that's a good statement in his defense, real quick. I haven't taken an ass from any of them. I'm not out here to aggrandize myself. I'm not out here to become a prince over them. Respect not thou their offering. Now what verse in the New Testament does that relate to? Hebrews 13 and verse 17. As they that must give an account, if they do with joy, it's to your profit. If they do with grief, it is not to your profit. Was Moses' prayer here to the prophet of Korah and his friends? We are about to, we are about on the brink, literally, of something severe that happened to them. Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow, and take every man his censer and put incense in them, and bring ye before the Lord every man his censer, two hundred and fifty censers, thou also and Aaron, each of you his censer. He wants every single one of them there. And they took every man his censer and put fire in them and laid incense thereon and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. Now, men in a congregation like deacons will then try to draw up support among the membership. If we can get the membership to vote against this man, then we can control him. Watch it happen right here. Verse 19, And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Stop right there. Can you imagine poor Aaron and Moses standing there with 254 men with censers hanging in their hands approaching them? They're going to go in to worship Almighty God and they've gathered the entire nation up against two men. So you've got a majority rule. So if we call, so you stand up and you say, in the middle of some meeting, we want to take a vote today and see if what you preached this morning was what we want to hear. And all of you stand and vote against God's minister. Can you picture poor Moses? I and mean, this is an intimidating situation. I want you to realize it. I want you to think about it. I don't believe God would allow me to call fire down from heaven on this congregation if you deserved it. But you wouldn't have a pastor one nanosecond after you stood up. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. You know, it's been said that you and God make a majority anywhere. You and God make a majority anywhere. And when the glory of the Lord appears, and you know where it appears, it appears over the tabernacle, right behind Moses and Aaron. Two meek men standing there and facing a whole nation. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. This is division, brethren. This is why we separate from the seditious. Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And here's a true minister. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? They intercede. They intercede for the salvation of the very men who want their destruction. A minister will always go the, the nth degree, the last mile, as far as he possibly can to save even those that hate him.
that's a true minister. There's true meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is this kind of behavior, who will go as far as they can to save their enemies. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, He got the message, he heard the prayer, Don't destroy the whole nation for one man, that is, for the 250, primarily Korah. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. It's a sin to speak against God's ministers, and there was consumption coming. Get away and don't touch them. Don't we read that in the New Testament? Mark them. Where do we read that? Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Touch not the unclean thing. Come out from among them. Have no fellowship. Keep no company. When there's someone that is seditious and attempting to overthrow God's minister, avoid them, separate from them, because God's judgment is to be placed upon them. As it is in the case right here, Moses is out appealing to the nation to separate from these evil men. Verse 27, So they get up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side, everyone just scattered. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. Now did Moses get any particular thrill out of saying those words? He is simply teaching the word of the Lord, for I have not done them of mine own mind. Moses never wanted that job, and everything he did before that congregation wasn't his own idea. God told him to do it. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. If they die from a heart attack, they die from cancer, or they die from someone missing with an axe, accident, accidental death, death by disease, then God hasn't spoken by me. That'd be too easy. But if the Lord make a new thing, verse 30, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick, that is alive, into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass that the next day, and it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertain unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. Let me apply that. God's judgment on a seditious man in this congregation will not just be judgment on you. It'll be judgment on you and your wife and your sons and your little children and all that appertains unto you. Thus saith the word of the Lord. Verse 34, And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the two hundred and fifty men 
that offered incense. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning. Now what do you have? You have a pile of melted human flesh. The fire of God had come out, burned up 250 men. But there's some gold in there. And God says to Eleazar, Go and get the gold out of the pile of melted human flesh. Get it out of the burning and scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. What's hallowed? The men or the censers? <laughs> the censers. The censers of these sinners against their own souls. Let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, therefore they are hallowed. And they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And Eleazar the priest took the brazen censers wherewith they that were burnt had offered, and they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar, to be a memorial unto the children of Israel, that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Abraham, come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah, and as his company, as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. What did they do? They took 250 censers, beat them out into flat plates, put them all together, and wrapped the altar with these plates. Do you know what that did? Every time you approach the worship of God, you saw some beat-up censers that were flattened out hanging around that altar, and you had a memorial. That's a word used here. You had a sign used here to remember what? The ministry. Remember them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. I am going through number 16 to help you remember them that have the rule over you. Verse 41, But on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. Isn't that pitiful? The very next day, You've excluded the Lord's people. Isn't that pitiful? There was no nation like the Jewish nation. I, I don't believe a group of Gentiles, and I know I can prove it from the Bible. God said to Ezekiel, if I sent you to a people of a strange tongue, they would hear and obey what you preach. But to Israel, forget it. They're a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, majority rule again, you've killed the people of the Lord. Shame on you, taking that authority to yourself and calling down judgment upon them. The whole congregation backs them up to the tabernacle again. Second day in a row. The congregation looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. What's a good minister going to do? Now, wouldn't you be running out about this time? Saying, Lord, that's not a bad idea. I'll turn my back. I don't want to see it or hear it, but cut loose. What would you do? We've probably done that the first time. I mean, after a demonstration of the power of God like that, what does a godly minister do? You aren't convicted by this verse like I am. This verse doesn't mean as much to you as it does to me. 
and they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into the congregation make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. Who did he send with a censer? Aaron, God's man. Could he make an atonement for the whole nation? He did. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. That's a long chapter. We took a long time covering it. It is for your profit. Remember them that have the rule over you, brethren. I will boast of this as being your pastor. I have tried in every single case of exclusion in this church to save them to the very last moment where they condemn themselves. My sweet little wife is far more ferocious than I am when it comes to judging the saints of God. There are more times than you can imagine or know because you do not know what has been faced in this congregation where my wife has come and said to me, and this is no condemnation of her, but except love for her husband, to say, why don't you just get rid of them? And you know my wife. If I'd ever believed there'd be a day like that when she'd be telling me to be tough, I don't know what I would have done when I married her. But many times that's happened. Why don't you just get rid of them? And I've said, no, Jesus Christ has called me to save, not to destroy. Jesus Christ hasn't called me to slaughter sheep, but to save sheep, even if I have to carry them, and even if they're kicking me while I carry them, and even if they run away all the time and want to hide. I understand Moses and Aaron. I hope before God I'm somewhat comparable. That's before my judge, the almighty God of heaven and earth. The next chapter of the book of Numbers, and if you're reading through your Bible, you're going to be to it soon. The next chapter is when God wanted to make it clear again the next day when he had all the tribes bring one rod forward and set it before the Lord overnight. And remember what happened to Aaron's rod? For the tribe of Levi, the next day it had limbs growing off of it and full, full nuts and blossoms hanging down, almonds hanging everywhere off of that rod. And that rod was taken up, put in the Ark of the Covenant as another sign, another reminder, only one tribe, only one man, Aaron, was to come near unto the Lord. Don't let anyone else get near the office of the ministry. One other reference in the Old Testament is 2 Kings chapter 2. You, not, you don't need to turn there. That's when 42 children said to Elisha, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Now all they did was make fun of the man of God because he was bald. I don't know if I'll go bald. I have receding hairline. 
But anyway, those children made fun of him as a bald man. Elisha turned and cursed them. Was he a godly man? Two she-bears came out of the wood and tear, 42 of them. God defends his ministers. Tonight, when we come together again, having established the New Testament background and a memorial, especially with Numbers chapter 16, I want to look at the duties. And what does it mean to remember? When it says remember them that have the rule over you, that means to know them in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, to esteem them, 1 Thessalonians 5.13, obey them, support them, pray for them, and the other duties that God expects you to observe toward your minister. This is for your profit, brethren. I do not want the anger of the Lord to be kindled against anyone here. I do not want the Lord to hear any words spoken against his minister. Magnify his minister as God's ambassador, and God will honor you. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.